You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. to Philippians chapter 4, please. Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to begin reading at verse 10, and we'll read verses 10 through 14 together, and then we'll open our time in prayer. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Let's bow together as we open our time. Our Father, we come to you humbly confessing that we can know nothing apart from your gracious enablement and your revelation. We thank you for your precious word, which is indeed precious to us, and we come to it now with the request that you would be our teacher, that you would teach us those things that we do not know, and that you would work in us those things which are pleasing in you and to you, and that you would do that by your Spirit. Give us now a blessing as we look at your word, and may our time here be profitable for us and for your glory in, to be manifested in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some virtues of Christian character and some things in your Christian life that you I've come to the conclusion you will never learn them from a book. You'll never learn them from a sermon. They are the most, I think, the most precious and the most valuable lessons in life cannot be learned by reading a book. And the most valuable and precious character qualities and virtues of Christianity can never be learned from a sermon or watching a program about it or a documentary or even in a Bible study. There are just some virtues and some values and some character traits that have to be forged in us through a life lived under sometimes adversity and sometimes suffering and sometimes blessing. And there are things that we have to learn that you just have to learn by living out the Christian life and you come to a point of having learned this very valuable virtue. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of what I'm talking about. When I went to Bible college, I got my syllabus and my schedule of classes for first semester and second semester. And I looked over the schedule of classes and there was no Humility 101. Was it in the curriculum? I didn't take it in second semester. There was no Humility 201 or 301 or 401. In fact, I went to all four years and got my Bachelor of Arts and they handed me my diploma and I never took a single class on humility. Not a single class. In fact... Receiving a diploma did absolutely nothing to help with humility for anybody that I graduated with. Nothing at all. Uh, patience is another one. It, no patience 101. Those were, are virtues that you learn simply by going through the grinder of life. The most valuable lessons, the most 
cherished lessons and virtues of your Christian character are not forged in the classroom and not through reading a book. And you can have somebody and you can run across somebody who can parse Greek and Hebrew and read and translate Greek and Hebrew, knows their Bible forwards and backwards, a Bachelor of Arts or a Master of Arts or a doctorate hanging on their wall, and they can lack all of the virtues that might be demonstrated by the most uneducated, unarticulate, ungifted saint of God in some hovel somewhere. Some lessons you just do not learn from books. Humility is one of those. Patience is one of those. Long-suffering is one of those. And contentment is one of those. You're just not going to learn contentment from a book. And you're not going to learn contentment from this sermon or a dozen others like it. No, there won't be a dozen more like it, so don't panic. But you're not going to learn contentment from this sermon or a dozen more like it. Contentment is one of those virtues that you just have to learn by living your life and that God is involved in teaching us. We come to the subject of contentment because we're in Philippians 4, verse 11, where the Apostle Paul says, not that I'm speaking to you out of want or out of need or poverty or lack, but I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. Now, last week we looked at what the Apostle Paul is doing, beginning at verse 10, going through the end of the chapter. He is writing a thank you letter to the church at Philippi for a gift that they had sent at the hand of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus had come. He had brought the gift. He had stayed with Paul, ministered to Paul. Now Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi, and Paul is sending with him this letter to the Philippians, to the church. And at the end of the epistle, he gets to the thank you. And he is thanking them for it. And he says, I rejoiced at it. Not that I was rejoicing at the gift itself, but at your expression of concern. And I rejoice because of what this gift is going to mean for you and for your relationship with the Lord. And then he says, I I don't want you to misunderstand. My rejoicing is not because I lack something that now that you have provided. Rather, my I am rejoicing because you have demonstrated your concern for me and God is going to work through this for his good. And he didn't want the Philippians to think that Paul had interpreted their lack of sending a gift earlier to be a lack of concern. That's why he says in verse 10, not that you weren't concerned earlier, you were concerned The second thing he wanted them to understand is that he didn't think that it was because of any fault of their own that they hadn't sent a gift. Paul simply said, you lacked opportunity. But now that the gift has arrived, I'm grateful for it, but I don't want you to think that I'm saying this because I have a need that I want you to fill. And I'm grateful for it, but I don't want you to think that I'm speaking out of poverty or meager circumstances or lean circumstances or anything like that. That's when we get to verse 11 where Paul says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. Now, I want to plow deeply through verse 11. I want to look at what biblical contentment is, what biblical contentment looks like, how we get biblical contentment, what it is and what it isn't, and what it is intended to do for us. Contentment is a rare virtue. It's a rare virtue. It seems that we live in a culture that is amazingly discontented. Have you noticed that? We live in a culture that is amazingly discontented. It seems like we live in a time and an age where discontent has reached proportions that were almost unthinkable a few generations ago. That's not to say that a few generations ago nobody was discontent. But it seems that our culture, our society, our nation has found ways to stoke the fires of discontentment, even glory in discontentment, And it seems that we have turned discontentment into a virtue and contentment into a vice. Maybe part of that is advertising. Have you noticed the advertisements? You watch an advertisement? Listen, I had no idea I needed a new van until I saw the new van on TV. 
Had no idea I needed one. And then when the interest rates are low and manufacturers are giving them away, all of a sudden I realize I need a new van. The advertisement helped me to realize my need for a new van. And I do that. And, and then the advertisement goes off the screen. Another thing comes on. And guess what? I need that too. I never knew I needed that. I forget all about the van till the next van advertisement comes on. Then I realize I need my van. And what was the second thing I needed? I don't even remember what that was. When we were um, we went on vacation this last October up to Nova Scotia and to visit Deidre's sister. We spent two weeks there. She paid for our plane ticket out. She paid for three nights in a hotel while we were there in Halifax. And then she paid for a rental van that we had for two weeks while we were in Nova Scotia. We were staying with her. And the rental, the van that we got, it was a huge blessing. The van that we had arranged to rent was a brand new Dodge Grand Caravan. So it was night when we flew into Halifax. It was evening. We landed there and we walked out. It was a nice, black, shiny, polished van. It was a beautiful thing. I loaded up all my luggage, loaded up my kids, and I did my little walk-around thing. You walk around the van and you make sure that there's not some ding on the van that they're going to charge you for after they charge 15 other people for that same ding. I wanted to make sure of that, so I did my walk-around to check it all out. I got in and I put the key in the ignition. And it wasn't even a key key like you have a key probably on your keychain. It's one of these little plastic dealies which has a little sensor in it and it's not even a key. It's just a plastic plug. And it doesn't work for every van. It just works for that van because there's something in the electronics and the magnet or however. I don't know what it is, but it was just awesome. And I turned on the ignition and the dashboard lit up. Oh, it was awesome. <laughs> lit up. And I thought to myself, I feel like I'm sitting in the cockpit of the space shuttle. This thing was awesome. So I turned around to my children before I even put the van in gear and I said, look, we're in a brand new van and we're going to have this for two weeks. And here is our number one rule for our vacation in Halifax. No coveting. No coveting. That's the rule. You can smoke in the van. You can eat in the van. You can drink in the van. It's a rental van. But no coveting. And so every once in a while, we'd be driving down the street and one of the kids would say, Oh, Dad, look at this. This van's got it. And I'd say, Hey, 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 hey. No coveting. And of course, it came back to bite me because every time I admired some feature, the children would say, Dad, no coveting. That was our, that was our rule. And then I got home got into my van, flew back into Calgary, got into my van, and the whole way back on the flight and that whole two weeks, I'm thinking to myself, you know, if our family were willing to give up a few things, we could probably make a van payment. If we were willing to give up maybe 12 or 15 meals a month, that's all it would take. That's only about one every other day. We could probably stretch that out. We could sacrifice in different areas. Going through my mind thinking, I'm going to go down, with, I just want to find out how much a new van is going to cost. Got back into Calgary, got in our old van. It had been keyed while we were gone. So there's a big scratch down the side, which helped me really appreciate the virtue of contentment. Got back in my van, took off. By the time we got home, forgot I even needed a new van. Now, whether I need one or not, I don't know. It's kind of a, I really don't think I am. I'm content with it. I'm fine with it. But you know, even the advertisements do not create discontentment in us. Do you understand that? The advertisements do not create discontentment. Advertisers know that you and I are covetous people and that we are discontented people, and they play on that. All an advertisement does is bring out of your heart what is already there. The heart is discontent. The heart is covetous. And the advertisers know how to make you realize that covetousness and to bring it to the surface. You could do away with all of the advertisements in the world and you would not do away with one whit of covetousness or discontent. It's a rare virtue. It's a rare virtue in our, our culture, even though we live 
in the most affluent society that has ever been on this planet. We as a people enjoy more wealth for more people and more kinds of people spread out more prolifically than any other nation that has ever lived in the history of this planet. We enjoy more comforts, more conveniences, more prosperity, more provision, more food. There's no such thing as poverty in this nation. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. Every need we could possibly imagine has been met. Every want we could possibly imagine, we have the ability to meet on our own. We live in that type of affluence. But has it done anything for our covetousness? We are still among the most discontented people in the whole world because we want more, don't we? We want just a little bit more. In fact, it is that covetousness and that discontentment that plays to a large part into the financial crisis, supposedly, that faces our entire planet. It is that desire for more, the want to have something that I may not be able to afford and to have it now and to want it at all costs and to want to get it even if somebody else has to pay for it. It's covetousness and it's discontentment. It's a rare virtue. We would expect the virtue to be rare among unbelievers, and it is. We would expect that virtue to be rare among pagans, among those who do not have heaven as, as their hope, and among those whose hearts have never been given a new affection. But tell me that it is not so among believers as well. Among those who have been given a new affection. Among those who do have heaven as their hope. Among those who have been born again. Is there any more contentment among believers than there is among unbelievers? Do you see it ever? It is rare. And today we have a gospel of greed that promotes, is promoted all over our airways and on our television sets. You can walk into any Christian bookstore and probably 10% of the offerings in the bookstore have to do with having your best life now, getting everything you want, making God your little genie, and all you have to do is find out how to rub His belly and get what you want out of Him. God becomes their own personal servant, their own personal bellhop. And it's a gospel of greed and it's a gospel of covetousness. And now among those who call themselves evangelicals, covetousness is a virtue. And discontentment is seen as the path to spiritual progress. And the more discontented and greedy and covetous you are, the more holy and sanctified and faith-filled you are. Is that backwards or what? It's a rare virtue. Even among Christians it's rare. It's also an elusive virtue. Contentment. One of the dangers is that I would stand up here and talk about contentment and that you would be convinced that you need contentment and I would be convinced that we need contentment and then we would all leave here wanting contentment and go out and go after it the wrong way and pursue contentment the way that seems most naturally for us to pursue contentment. You'll never find it pursuing it the way that comes most naturally to you because contentment, listen to this, this is key, contentment is not gained by gaining anything else. Contentment is gained by losing Something. That's the mystery and the paradox of contentment. Contentment is not, you don't gain something and then get contentment after that. You actually have to lose something. And I'm not talking about material possessions. Don't think, oh, I gotta give up my house and give up my car and give up my job. It's not what we're talking about. You have to lose something in order to get contentment. That's the paradox. It's just like other paradoxes in scriptures. And isn't it beautiful and wise of God to do this very thing? To make contentment something we get in a way that we wouldn't normally think that we would get contentment? The way up in the kingdom is what? Down. You want to be greatest in the kingdom, what do you have to do? Be a servant of all. You want to be first? You've got to be last. Because the last will be first. It's the opposite. 
I'm weakest. When I'm weakest, that is when I'm at my strongest. You have to give away your life in order to gain your life. It's one of those paradoxes. You want contentment? doesn't come by gaining anything. You cannot gain something and arrive at contentment. There is nothing you can gain. There is nothing you can get that will give you contentment or make you content. You have to lose something. And I'll tell you what it is. But not today, because we need to answer that later on. Today, I just want to define what contentment is. I want you to see what it is. It's a rare virtue, and it's an elusive virtue. Third, it's also an essential virtue. John Piper has um, built an entire ministry and a whole, whole approach to Scripture and a whole way of thinking upon teaching Christians this one essential truth of your Christian life, and that is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. If you can nail down that one thought, and He has spent His entire life expositing and explaining and preaching that one major theme of Scripture, and I believe that that is the central interpretive motif, is the glory of God, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And if you can get that nailed down, then you can understand your entire Christian life. Everything else flows out of that. It is true that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And if discontent is my lack of satisfaction in God, then my discontent is in itself a handicap that keeps me handcuffed to my circumstances, handcuffed to my possessions, handcuffed to everything that's going to be burned up. And if I'm handcuffed to all of these things, then I am... I have an entire area of my life where I'm not able to glorify God because I'm not satisfied with Him. And so if my satisfaction comes from material possessions or circumstances or people or things or comforts or conveniences or new vans or whatever it is, if that's where my satisfaction comes, then those are the areas in which I'm not glorifying God because I'm not satisfied in Him. Contentment is a foundational virtue that really is underneath everything else that we are and everything else that we do. All of the other Christian virtues that we talk about and that we have in our lives are built upon the foundational virtue of contentment. Contentment is to your Christian life and to your Christian character what a foundation is to a house. You can build a house without a foundation. You can put up walls in a roof. It's going to be very inconvenient to live in that. Very frustrating to live in such a house. Very taxing. Very disappointing in many ways. Very uncomfortable and unsafe. But you can build a house without a foundation. The virtues of your Christian life are the same. You can build Christian virtues and never be content, but it's going to be unsatisfactory. It's going to be frustrating and it's dangerous. It's foundational. It's the foundational virtue upon which everything else rests and really depends for the other virtues to grow out. It's the soil in which the other virtues grow. It's a rare virtue. It's an elusive virtue. But it's an essential virtue. Now, having said all that, I want to offer a little bit of a disclaimer. As if my earlier illustration didn't do this for me. Here's my disclaimer. I want you to in no way live with the illusion that I think that I am a perfect role model of contentment. Because I'm not. I'm not at all. In fact, I've been very exercised in my own spirit about this very virtue for many months now. In fact, since before we started the book of Philippians, I couldn't wait to get to Philippians chapter 4 and this passage on contentment because I knew that this was going to bear fruit in my own life. And I was looking forward to reading this and studying this and working through this with you and answering the questions in my mind because I'm very, I, I understand how discontented of an individual that I myself am. So if you think, and I don't want you to th- leave here thinking, Jim thinks he's got this contentment thing nailed down. I want you to understand, if you think that discontentment and grumbling and complaining never rear their ugly heads in the Osman home. 
<laughs> Come on. Let me tell you, they do. In fact, I've been thinking about getting a dog just so that I would have a role model of what contentment and satisfaction is so that the rest of us could learn from the dog. And we would just look at Spike and say, look at that. He lays around and he drools and he eats his food and he's happy all day long. That's contentment. But I like dogs. Not in the same way I like cats, but I like dogs. So, <laughs> I don't want you to think that I think I've got this contentment thing nailed down. I am far more content. I can say this honestly. I am far more content today than I was 12 and 15 years ago. Light years beyond where I was 12 and 15 years ago. But I also have a far deeper understanding of how far I need to go before I reach true biblical contentment. Now, that's not to say that I'm greedy. Because I'm not. I don't do this for money. I'm not interested in filthy lucre. If I was interested in money, I, wouldn't, I would have stopped being a pastor 11 and a half years ago. Never would have started doing this. No, no pastor in his right mind does this for money. At least not in our area. I'm not greedy. But greedy is different. greed is different than discontentment. They overlap just slightly. But I want you to understand, greed and discontent are not the same thing. You can be very discontent and not have a greedy bone in your body. You can be sitting here today and you can be discontent about a hundred things that have nothing to do with finances or money or possessions at all. You can be discontent about your spouse, about your kids, about your school, about your Sunday school teacher, about the music, the music leader, my preaching, the arrangement of the chairs here on a Sunday morning, the special music and who's involved in it, the elders of this church. You can be discontent about your job or the new boss that you have or what they want you to do at your job now or the flavor and the strength of the coffee that they serve there or about the color of the walls on your new cubicle or the fact that you don't have an office with a view anymore or your secretary or you can be discontent with your spiritual gift and think, oh, if only I could teach or if only I could do that or if I only had that ability and I didn't have this. You could be discontent about your own physical abilities and say, I wish I didn't have this handicap or that handicap or this illness or this sickness. I wish I had this physical ability. I wish I could jump 13 feet tall and slam dunk a basketball. You can be discontent about all of those things. None of them have anything to do with possessions or material possessions. You can be sitting here today and be the biggest giver in the church, the most generous and the most faithful giver in the church, have no connection whatsoever, no love for money whatsoever, and be the most discontented person sitting here. You understand that? It is when we understand how far-reaching contentment is that we realize how discontented we really are. Now, having said all of that, and understanding that that's plenty to think on for a whole week, we haven't really looked at verse 11 yet. So let's get into verse 11. Paul says, Not that I speak from want, but I want you to understand, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I have learned to be content. Let's just stop there for a second. I have learned. You catch that? Contentment is something you learn. Uh, it's a very personal lesson that Paul is talking about. It, in the Greek, it actually the I is in an emphatic location in the sentence. And it's as if the Apostle Paul is emphasizing the I part of it for a second. He's saying, I have learned to be content. Now, I don't know if the I is an emphasis of, of sort of surprise that even I have learned or if he's just simply saying to the Philippians, look, I want you to know, this is not a lesson that has escaped me. This is not a lesson that I as an apostle was exempt from. But I, Paul, have learned to be content. I, for my part, have learned this virtue of contentment. It was a personal lesson and Paul had to learn it. He was not exempt from it. He didn't sit out the lessons. He was in the school of Christ and taught contentment just like you and I are taught contentment. It's a very personal lesson. Nobody else is going to learn contentment for you. Nobody else can learn that. You can't sit back 
and watch what God does in somebody else's life and say, oh, the Lord is teaching them contentment. I get it. I understand it now. You can't do that. You have to learn contentment. It's a personal lesson. And God is not going to exempt you from it. You had to learn to walk, right? You had to learn grammar. You had to learn to read and write and do math, addition, subtraction, tie your shoes, drive a car. All those things you had to learn to do. At some point in your life, you had to learn those things. Why? Because those are foundational issues of life. And we all realize that somebody who doesn't know how to walk or somebody that doesn't know how to talk or somebody that doesn't know how to read and write and add and subtract and tie their shoes, they're handicapped in some measure or in some fashion. That shows a defect of some care, of something, maybe something outside of you. I'm not talking about physically handicapped or, or mentally retarded people. I'm talking about if you had somebody in your life didn't know how to tie their shoes or read or write, you would say that is a handicap to them. There was a point where one of our children resisted learning to read. Do you think I just took that off the curriculum? Well, he doesn't want to learn to read. <laughs> Guess we just won't teach him. No. Why? As a good parent, I know that it would handicap that child if I didn't make them learn how to read. So we make them learn how to read. Why? Because that's a foundational skill that's required for all of the other blessings that come with that. Contentment is that way. You have to learn contentment. It's a foundational skill. Nobody can learn it for you. You have to learn it. It's a personal lesson. It's also a continuing lesson. When Paul says, I have learned, the word learned there is not a word that speaks of a past event. Paul uses the word learned, and the word is a what's called a constantive errorist verb, which means that the Apostle Paul is not speaking of one event in the past. He's not looking back to a point in time where he says, oh, this is where I learned it, here on the Damascus Road, or here in the jail at Philippi, or in the jail at Caesarea, or now in Rome. He's not looking back at an event. The Apostle Paul is looking back over the span of his Christian life and he is considering all of the things that he has gone through and endured since he became a believer. And he is saying, this is what I have learned over the course of all of this. From standing up out of the dust on the Damascus Road until the time that he writes in his present, I have learned to be content. He is summing up the lessons of his Christian life and he's saying, this is the lesson that I've learned. I have learned in all circumstances to be content. That is a continual lesson that you learn. I am under no illusions that you are going to learn contentment or that I'm going to learn contentment from this sermon. <laughs> I don't think it's possible at all. You're not going to walk out of here and say, got it nailed. But I do hope that by the time you're 50 or 60 or if you're already there, by the time you're 80 or 90 or by the time you die, that at some point you would be able to say, look, over the course of my whole Christian life, I can sum up everything and be able to say, I've learned the virtue of contentment. It's a continuing lesson. You're never going to arrive and say, and, and be able to say that at this one point, this is the lesson that I learned. It's continual. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. It is a continual lesson. It's also a very unnatural lesson. Do you have to learn things that come naturally? Do you have to learn things to come? Let me put it this way. Did you have to learn discontent? Mom and dad ever sit down and teach you? Look, son, you're way too content. Let me explain to you what discontentment and grumbling and complaining looks like. Ever have to do that? No. Do you ever have to learn to sin? Not a learned behavior. It's part of your nature. It comes naturally. But you have to learn contentment. Contentment is not a natural condition in your heart or in my heart. It wasn't a, the natural propensity of Paul's heart any more than it is the natural propensity of your heart or my heart. What is it that comes naturally from the soil? Weeds or wheat? Weeds. Weeds grow without any effort on your behalf whatsoever. They will 
seed themselves. It seems that they water themselves. They reproduce prolifically and they fall on the ground. You don't have to do any. You want a garden full of weeds, do nothing. Absolutely nothing. In marsh, just let it sit. Don't even bother going out and spreading weed seeds. You don't have to do that. But what does not come naturally to the soil? Wheat. The most precious things of the earth must be cultivated. It is that way agriculturally and it's that way in your spirit. Discontent and grumbling and bickering and complaining and dissatisfaction with a multitude of things and greed and covetousness, those are all the natural expressions of the human heart. All of those things come naturally, but contentment is something you have to learn. Spurgeon once says, Contentment is one of the flowers of heaven, and if we would have it, it must be cultivated. It will not grow in us by nature. It is the new nature alone that can produce it. And even then, we must be especially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate this grace which God has sown in us. That will be cultivated. By the way, you're not going to ever be content unless you learn it. And don't live with a silly notion in your mind that you're going to learn it without any effort whatsoever. It doesn't happen that way. It has to be cultivated. But it is, I believe, a fruit worth cultivating, and it is, I believe, a virtue worth investing some time and some effort and some thought into, and some prayer. It's very unnatural to us. I think, and this is helpful for me to think of Paul in this way. Paul says, this is something I have learned, which basically implies, and I think quite explicitly, that this was not something he always had. There was a time when Paul was not content, and I don't think he's talking about prior to his Christian life. There were times, I think, in Paul's life when he struggled with it just like you and I did. And he would look at his own heart and say, man, the covetousness, I hate it. Man, the discontent, the dissatisfaction, the grumbling and complaining that is there in my heart. And I think he struggled with it. And I think there were times when the Apostle Paul would make real advancements in this and then realize how far short he fell. And then he would be covetousness or see this grumbling or complaining or this discontent in his heart and he would have to repent over it. And he would make progress in his Christian life. That's what it means to learn something. It doesn't mean that you're perfect from the time that you begin the lesson, but it means that there are times when you fail. And there were times when Paul realized how discontent he was and how unsatisfied he was. But over the course of his Christian life, he was able to say, I've learned to be content. Not an easy lesson, not a natural lesson, not a lesson that I like to repeat over and over, but it is a lesson that he had learned. Now, what does the word content mean? Paul uses the word autarkes, a tar case, and it meant simply to be satisfied. Contentment is a good translation. Content or satisfied. It really had the idea of sufficiency. He uses it two other times. Once, interestingly enough, in the epistle to the Corinthians, when he's talking there also in the subject or in the context of giving and giving finances, Second Corinthians chapter 8 or 9 verse 8, Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency, that's the word, all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when it is accompanied with contentment. And he's writing to Timothy and he's warning Timothy about men who suppose that godliness was a means of great gain. Become more godly and God will give you more blessings. And the more godly you are, the more prosperous you'll become. Modern day heresy, if there ever was one. And Paul's warning Timothy and saying, look, godliness is a means of great gain, but not because it brings financial reward and not because it brings prosperity, but godliness is a means of great gain in the eternal scope when that godliness is accompanied with contentment. And then Paul goes on to say, we brought nothing into this world. We can take nothing out of the world. So having food, having clothing, with these we should be content. But don't set your hope on riches because they fly away. 
That's how he uses the word contentment. It means to be satisfied, to be full, to have sufficiency. Now, there was a way in which contentment was used in the ancient world and even in Paul's day. You remember the Stoics? Have you heard the word Stoics? I mentioned them back in Acts 17, which was a long time ago. Let me refresh in your mind what a Stoic was. A Stoic was somebody who believed that God was an impersonal force who fated all things. They were fatalists. And they believed that God, who was this impersonal force, simply drew out a destiny, fated all things to happen, and that the ultimate virtue and the ultimate good was demonstrated in a man who was able to take whatever circumstances came his way and to simply resign himself to those circumstances without facing any emotion or without being moved by those circumstances at all. That was the Stoic. So whether you face life or whether you face death, whether you face prosperity or whether you face a lack or poverty, to be able to face all of it with equal emotion, equal equanimity, to be able to approach all of life, whatever circumstance may come, and not be moved by it and not be affected by it. And in the stoic mind, that was only possible in somebody's life who was in the, in the man or the woman who was able to dig down deep inside of them and pull out from their own well of wisdom, their own well of strength, some inner resource that had strengthened them and able to sort of steal them against the circumstances. So a stoic was somebody who, whether it's life or whether it's death, I can face both of them with the same emotion and not be moved by my circumstances. And so the stoics would say, that's contentment. The ability to take whatever fate has determined for you and to approach it without being moved or altered by those circumstances whatsoever. Listen, this is not what Paul means by contentment. Not at all. In the Stoic mind, in the ancient mind, their idea of contentment was a self-sufficiency. The ability to dig way down deep inside of yourself and rely upon all of your own resources and all of your own abilities and your own strength in order to face life. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about self-sufficiency. You know what he's talking about? Christ's sufficiency. That's what verse 13 is about. I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. The most twisted, abused, maligned, misquoted, misapplied, uh, grossly violated verse that has ever been pulled out of its context and used to put on the back of a boxer's shorts. Are you kidding me? That verse has nothing at all to do with beating some guy's head in, jumping higher than everybody else on the team, or lifting more weight than anybody else in high school. That verse is so abused. You know what it has to do with? I can be nothing because Christ strengthens me to be. I can have nothing because Christ strengthens me to have nothing. That's why Paul says it. It doesn't matter what my circumstances are. It's not a matter of being self-sufficient. It's a matter of being Christ-sufficient. So Paul is, unless, unless you misunderstand that contentment is something that Paul was able to dig down deep inside of himself and produce and manifest, that's not it at all. Paul is saying it's not anything in me. It is through Christ that I am sufficient. It is through Christ that I am satisfied. That's why in Hebrews 13, verse 5, it says, Let yourselves be free from the love of money and be content with what things you have. Why? Because he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that's the point that the author of Hebrews is making. If you have the basic necessities of life, be satisfied. Be content. How can you be content when you have nothing? You can be content because you have Christ and he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And if you have Christ, then you have everything. And that's the key. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. I can be content because I have Christ in every circumstance. That's why Paul said the circumstances don't matter. Lack or plenty. It's irrelevant to the discussion. 
Whether I'm in poverty or whether I'm rich, irrelevant to the discussion. Good circumstances, bad. Good job, bad job. Prison or a king's suite, it doesn't matter. I can be content. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are, whether I'm suffering affliction and persecution or whether I'm living in the lap of luxury with uh, freedom. I can be content. Whether it, with little or with much, that's verse 12. With little or with much, I can be content with that. Why? Because he says, I have Christ in every circumstance. And if I have Christ in every circumstance, and if for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, then He is everything to me. And if He's everything to me, then I'm satisfied in Him. And if I'm satisfied in Him, then my contentment is not handcuffed to my circumstances or my provision. And I can go without, or I can have an abundance, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect my contentment. That's biblical contentment. That's not what the Stoics meant. That's not what the ancients meant. But that's what Paul means. as He describes it in verse 12 and in verse 13. And I can do all of this Through Christ who strengthens me. Until Christ is everything, you will not be satisfied with Him. And you will never be able to say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, until He is your ultimate satisfaction. But I fear that for some of us, we'll never be satisfied with Christ. And it's not because of any lack in Christ. It's not because He lacks something. It's not because of any defect in Him, His person or His character. We're just never going to be satisfied with Him. So you're kind of like a fool who runs around chasing his tail all the time, a dog. Chasing his tail all the time. Thinking if you could just catch the tail, you'd be satisfied or happy. And you're going to spend the rest of your life chasing your tail, and you're going to die chasing your tail. And God has not created you to chase your tail. He's created you to pursue Him. And until you stop chasing your tail and pursue Him and find your satisfaction in Him, you'll never be content. And you're going to hew broken cistern after broken cistern, thinking that those things can be filled with material possessions, with reputations, with jobs, with people, with relationships, with prestige, with everything else that we try and bring in to fill the void. You think that you can fill those things and become content and become satisfied if I only had this, or I could only do this, or if I could only get that, and it will never happen. Listen, if Christ is not enough for you, let me make a prediction. You will never be content. Never. It will never happen. You might as well try to climb to the moon on a rope of sand as to find your satisfaction and contentment in anything other than Christ. He is the only thing that brings contentment. So contentment is gained not from what we gain, but from what we lose. We have to lose something. We've got a lot more plowing deeply to do on the subject of contentment. I've only defined contentment for you. I haven't described it yet. I have to describe what contentment looks like in your life. When you see contentment manifested in somebody's life, what's it look like? How does it, how does it act? How does it respond? What does it look like lived out and fleshed out? That's something we have to answer in the coming weeks. A second question we have to answer in the coming weeks is, how then do I attain this? How then do I cultivate this virtue of contentment? I want to know that as badly as you do, because I know the murmurings of my own heart. And we will begin to pursue those two roads next week. What does it look like? How do I describe it? And then how do I get contentment? Let's pray. Father, we bless your name and we thank you that Christ is sufficient for us. We thank you, Father, that your word gives us instruction and that it gives us illumination into these areas of our hearts. I pray, Father, that through our time that we spend here discussing these things and thinking upon these things and illustrating them and viewing them from your word, that you would be working in us that grace of contentment, that this would be something that would contribute in our lives in a healthy manner and to a healthy degree toward us learning this lesson of contentment. We pray that you would fix our hearts and our minds again upon Christ 
And may he be our satisfaction and our joy. And may you be glorified in us to the extent that we are satisfied in you and with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.